Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight is from Psalm 96. This psalm has no title in Hebrew Bible. Therefore, according to the Hebrew version, there is no mention of the author or the occasion in which this psalm was written. However, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the title is A Song of David When the House Was Built After the Captivity. So this psalm actually is written by David and it is used when the house of God was built after the captivity. And the psalm contains the middle verses of the psalm David sang for the entrance of the Ark of Covenant into Jerusalem. As you read in First Chronicles chapter 16 from verse 23 to 33, this psalm originally chanted when David brought the Ark of Covenant into Jerusalem. So David is the author. And then this psalm is used again after the people returned from the captivity and built the house of God. There are some psalms are called psalms of enthronement. This psalm are 93 and from 95 to 99. So Psalm 96 is considered one of the several enthronement psalms. Why these psalms are called psalms of enthronement? Because as we will see in Psalm 96, this psalm and other psalms celebrate God as king and affirm his lordship over all creation. Also enthronement psalms call all people to praise God and sing songs of joy to him. This psalm, Psalm 96, praises God with an emphasis on God's rule and reign as well as his presence. Though this psalm was sung at the time of bringing up the ark to Jerusalem, but in a prophetic way, it looks further to the kingdom of Christ and is designed to celebrate the glories of the kingdom of Christ, especially the return of the Gentiles and the conversions of the Gentiles to Christianity. We could read this psalm as a warm-hearted invitation to all the nations to come to God of Israel and find salvation in him. With a look backward to the ark arriving in Jerusalem, this psalm also is looking forward to when the Messiah brings God's reign over all the earth, because with the incarnation of the Son of God, 
he established his kingdom, his spiritual kingdom, after Satan reigned over all the world until the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the true king over all the earth. Although, according to some, this son concerned the new temple built by the Babel after the returning of the Jewish from Babylonian captivity, but this psalm in reality is the song of all humanity, praising the Lord for the sake of their liberation from the captivity of the devil, not the Babylonian captivity, but captivity by the devil, and the church of God building a holy spiritual temple for the Lord. So this psalm first speaks to the people of God at the beginning, then to all nations of the earth, and at the end, even to the creation itself. According to St. Jerome, the title of this psalm is an invitation to every believer to rebuild his house, spiritual house, destroyed by our enemy, the devil. St. Jerome says, This house of Christ, as is clear from the words of the psalmist, is being rebuilt every day in the life of the repentant. When we live the life of repentance, as if we are rebuilding the house of God in us every day. This psalm also is the first psalm we pray in the ninth hour of the Agbayan. Also, there is a long hymn, we call it the long horse, el horse kibir. The long horse is chanted in the four Sundays of Kahk and also in the six Sundays of the great fast and also in some feasts. So we start midnight praises after Tensino with the long horse. The long horse actually is the first four verses from this psalm. And it's called the long horse because it's chanted with long melody. It takes about 20 minutes. But it's one of the beautiful hymns of the church. This psalm is 13 verses. We can outline them as follows. Verse 1 to 3. All the earth is invited to praise the Lord. From 3 to 6, God alone is great and glorious. From 7 to 9, calling the entire world to glorify God. Verse 10, proclaim God among the nations. 11 to 13, a message of joy to all creation. We'll start from Verse 1. O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. So here the word sing, the word new, and the word all the earth. Praise is due to God from all the earth. The psalmist begins by exhorting the whole world to unite in thanksgiving to God for the favors bestowed on us. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 
The psalmist saw a day when all the earth would sing a new song to the Lord, when the Gentiles enter into the faith, and not only Israel sing to God, but all the earth. But what does it mean, a new song? A new song represents a victory, a victory song, and a song of deliverance, as we read in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. New song means it is a song not like that of Moses or Deborah or any of the old songs, because these old songs could not be sung outside the promised land. As we read in Psalm 137, how will we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? But now a new song can be chanted anywhere in the world. That's why he said, sing to the Lord all the earth, not only Judea, not only Israel, but the whole world. A new song also is befitting men who have been renewed after baptism who are born again as a spiritual people, not carnal people. So the word new implies that there was some new occasion for celebrating the praises of God. Implies that some event had occurred or some truth relating to the divine character had now been made known to us. In the first four verses, you can see the word sing to the Lord was repeated three times. In verse 1, repeated two times. And in verse 2, repeated one time. So three times were repeated. As if it is a song to the Holy Trinity, to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. So, What is the content of this song? Blessing the name of God, proclaiming his salvation from day to day. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. In song, praise his power. His name, usually the name means the power of God. Besides singing, we need to bless God, bless his name. His name means his character. He's revealed the word and will are to be enchanted, remembered, with everlasting thanksgiving. Then the Psalms proceed to tell the subject of his praise and song, which is salvation, the coming of the Savior. As if he is saying, let the subject matter of this song be his salvation, the great salvation which was to be done by the incarnation, by the Lord Jesus Christ. These songs to the Lord were not only celebrations, but they are proclamation. We are proclaiming to the whole world the good news of salvation. This may have referred to what he had done to save the people in time of danger, as the returning from the Babylonian captivity. But the the language here is to express salvation in a higher sense. Salvation from sin, from death, from Satan, from corruption. 
It expresses what God has done for mankind, for all the people, not only the Jews, for the Jews and Gentile, in providing a way of salvation. Then he said from day to day, meaning, let this song be sung constantly, not only in times appointed for the feasts, but from day to day. It is a fit subject for unceasing praise. Every person should praise God every day, every morning, every night, all day. Because each day brings us deeper experience. Each day reveals the power of the gospel. Therefore, never stop to tell out the glorious message of grace. Verse 3, declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among the people. So, having said he should be praised at all times, he now adds that he should be praised in all places. Declare his glory among the nations. Make known the glory of God not only to the Jews, as the prophets of the Old Testament did, but also to the Gentiles. This he expresses more clearly when he says, make his wonders known among all the peoples. Tell all nations of his wonderful works so that his glory will be manifested among all the people. Let all mankind hear the joyful news of salvation. St. Augustine comments on this verse and says, His honor, not yours. O you builders, declare his honor unto the heathen, unto the Gentiles. Should you choose to declare your own honor, you shall fall. But his honor, you shall be built up while you are building. While you are building others, you will be built up. What are his wonders? His incarnation? What wonderful love he has shown in his incarnation? His wonders also include his suffering, his death, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven. Verse 4 For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. So the psalmist now inform us what glory of the Lord and what wonderful works of his that deserve such praise as he just mentioned. His glory consists of that God is absolutely great, whether in regard to his power, his wisdom, his goodness, his authority, his riches, in every possible sense that he should be and is actually praised in proportion to such a greatness. And if we know this, then we should know that heaven and earth are full of his glory. God is infinite in his nature and attributes and greatly to be praised. All our most exalted praises fall infinitely short of his greatness. Whatever we do to praise him, it will fall short. 
of his greatness. God is to be feared above all gods. Who are the all gods? There is no God except the true God. But although other idols are called gods, they have seized the name and place of the divine majesty, yet they have nothing of his nature or the power of the true God. That's why the true God rises so far above all who have falsely claimed to be called gods. They rather tremble before his majesty. Then in verse 5, he explains why God is to be feared above all gods. Verse 5, For all the gods of the people are idols. According to the Septuagint, all the gods of the people are demons. But the Lord made the heavens. So, the psalmist now gives a reason for why our God is feared above all gods when he said all gods, the gods of the people are idols. Meaning God is to be feared above all false gods that are wrongly worshipped by the Gentiles. Because the gods of the Gentiles are not true gods, but demons who through pride, the demons through pride, rebelled from God who created them and have destined by him to eternal punishment. But the Lord is a creator, creator who made the heavens, who created the angels, even the angels that fell and became demons. He is the greatest and the most beautiful. God created the greatest and the most beautiful things in nature, as well as everything in nature. All created things are created by him. And as I told you, the word idols translated in the Septuagint demons. But the Hebrew word means nothingness. All the gods of the Gentiles are nothing, empty, vain. So they are nothing, as they are called in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. They are vain, nothing. They had no real existence. They were the creation of the imagination. People imagined they are gods. They could not in any sense be regarded as what they were pretended to be. They had no claim to reverence and worship. Verse 6. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. After he said that God is great and to be feared, now he adds that he is most worthy of praise because he is most beautiful, glorious, and holy. The whole universe display God's majesty. And in verse 6, he personify the honor and majesty. Honor and majesty are before him strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So the attribute of honor and majesty are perhaps personified and regarded as attendants standing in the presence of God. Strength and beauty are terms applied in Psalm 
to the Ark of Covenant. Because the Ark of Covenant is a symbol of the presence of God. And the word sanctuary in verse 6 refers to the holy place where God dwells. His sacred place. Whether he's dwelling in heaven or the temple on earth in the Old Testament or the place of the worship churches in the New Testament. His earthly dwelling. And as we read in Hebrew chapter 8 verse 5 the earthly church is a copy and shadow of the heavenly. So when it is said that strength is there it means that the dwelling of God, the house of God, the church, is the source of power. And that power originates from God who dwells in the church. That's why people, when they say, why you go to church, I can worship God anywhere, we will tell them, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. You need to come to the church, because in the church, you will get this power, this strength. All and any beauty also proceed from him. In God, all these attributes are combined. Whatever is mighty and lovely, powerful and splendid are combined in him. According to the Septuagint and the Coptic version, this verse reads, Confession and splendor are before him. Purity and great majesty are in his sanctuary. Al-I'traf that's why based on this translation confession St. Augustine comments and says do you love beauty? do you want to be beautiful? confess he said not beauty and confession but he said confession and beauty if you are not beautiful confess that you may be fair You are a sinner, confess that you may be righteous. Verse 7. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples, give to the Lord glory and strength. This theme is repeated. God is worthy of praise from the entire earth, from all the families of the peoples. So in this context, give to the Lord means recognize and declare his glory and his strength. The glory and strength that belong to God in all his being. God promised Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that promise would be fulfilled in Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. So the same word families in your seed, all the families of the earth are blessed. The same word in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 is the same word used here in Psalm 96. So this verse may refer to the fulfillment of the promise of the Genesis. God told him all the families will be blessed. That's why in verse 7, give to the Lord all families of the people. When we give unto God these things, we don't give or attribute things to him that he did not have before. 
when you give me something, maybe you give me something that I don't have. But when we say give to the Lord, we are not giving him something that he didn't have. But the word give means what? Means recognize things as they are really. Because God is full of glory and strength. So recognize his strength and his glory. All families of people means all tribes of the nations. And all tribe of nations means all Gentiles, not only the Jews. And based on this translation, the psalmist now predict that all nations will be converted to Christianity. And all of them will glorify God after he had prophesied that the knowledge of God would be preached to all nations through the coming of Christ. So he said, proclaim the good news of salvation to all nations. So now he's saying, after you proclaim the good news of salvation, they will believe. And because they will believe, they will give glory and strength to God. And he calls upon them to come in families, in assemblies, in allusion to the Jewish custom of families coming on the several festival days to worship in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit gives us here to understand that such custom was to serve as a model for Christian whose families should unite in coming to the church to give glory and honor to God for all the wonderful things he accomplished in the redemption of man. We come into the presence of God to receive blessing and to give him glory. So our worship is mainly offering praises and thanksgiving unto God. Verse 8, give to the Lord the glory due to him. Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Bring to God what is due to him. So the psalmist refers here in verse 8 to a custom of the Jews. When they went up to the temple, they offered their sacrifices and after having worshipped God, returned to their homes. Bring an offering. So now, as the Gentiles are here invited to come to the church of God to worship, what are the sacrifices they should bring? These sacrifices are the spiritual sacrifices. As St. Peter said, offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. So the psalmist calls on us to bring offering, to offer works of love and mercy. These spiritual sacrifices are the sacrifices of a repentant, humble heart, sacrifice of confession of our sins, sacrifice of prayer, sacrifice of fasting, sacrifice of alms. Then the psalmist called the world to worship God in recognition of his holiness and to worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. As he said in verse 9, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. 
God delights in spiritual beauty, not in external outward beauty. Worship must not be given to God in a careless or sinful or superficial manner. We must be reverent, sincere, earnest, and pure in heart, both in our prayers and praises. All the acts of worship must be performed from a principle of the fear of God, with a holy awe and reverence. In the presence of great power, like the power of God, we often find ourselves manifesting some measure of awe, and God is the ultimate power. So it is appropriate to tremble before Him, especially when we understand that He will come to judge the earth, as we read in verse 13. He is coming to judge the earth. Some will refer this verse to the first coming, but others to the second coming. But actually, there is no reason that this verse should not apply to both first and second coming. Therefore, he says, tremble before him all the earth in his first and second coming. Let all the inhabitants of the earth be full of fear and reverence on the approach of the Lord. Verse 10, and it's one of the most important verses. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Why I'm saying it is important verse? According to the Septuagint and Coptic translation, it says, the Lord reigns from a wood. But as St. Jerome explained, and I will explain this, he said the Jews omitted the word wood because this will reveal that the true Messiah is Jesus Christ. So the theme of speaking to the entire earth continues in verse 10 calling the people of the world to worship and honor God as they should. Why? In order to stir the people up, preach to them that the Lord reigns. I told you this psalm is psalm of enthronement. The Lord reigns. This is a joyful, pleasant news which can be carried to the nations. And this is a fundamental and powerful message for God's people to proclaim to the world. It's our responsibility to proclaim to the whole world that the Lord reigns. The Lord God in the person of his son Jesus Christ is on the throne. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, though through which, through this spiritual kingdom, he reigns by faith in our hearts. Whether other people, non-believers, recognize his reign or not, the Lord nevertheless reigns. And that reign, one day, will be openly and obviously imposed upon the whole world. God always reigns in heaven, and he reigns on the earth through his power and majesty. But he began to reign through faith among the Gentiles, 
from the coming of the Messiah, where the devil previously reigned through idolatry. That's why the Lord said about Satan, the prince of this world. But he said in John chapter 12, verse 31, now the ruler of this world, Satan, will be cast out because the Lord reigns. When God manifestly reigns, the earth is at one established, settled, placed on a firm foundation. It shall not be moved, as we read in verse 10. Not the natural material world, because we know the natural material world by will pass away. But it shall not be moved means firmly established, so fixed and firm that nothing can move it from its place. So God is the deliverer of the old time. God is the king of the whole earth. Also he is God who will judge the earth and will give sentence to the people righteously and justly. So he is the deliverer of old age. He is the king. And as we read in verse 10, he shall judge the peoples righteously. So this is the greatest source of joy to oppressed people. When we go, we know that God will come to judge righteously. Justice causes the thrones of Jesus to stand. He will justly rule over the Jews and the Gentiles. And as the call for faith has been presented to all nations, all nations are called to believe in Jesus. In his second coming, the Lord will judge the people righteously. Because everybody heard about him. So those who refused and rejected him, then they have no excuse. Justin the martyr from 2nd century, in his dialogue with Trifo the Jew, quotes this verse, Say among the nations, the Lord rules by the wood, meaning the cross. And he accused the Jews of having omitted this word by the wood because of the evidence it gave to the truth of Christianity. Justin the martyr treats the psalm as a prophecy of Christ's reign after his crucifixion on the wood of the cross. And according to the Septuagint, this verse reads, Tell it out among the nations that the Lord reigns from the wood. Also, this verse, reigns from the wood, has been quoted by Tertullian and Augustine. That's why in the 12th hour of Good Friday, when we see the Lord reigning from the wood, we chant the hymn, Bekethronus, your throne, O Lord. Verse 11, Let the heaven rejoice, and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar, and all its fullness. So as I told you, the psalm started by calling the people of God, then the whole world, then the creation itself. So the psalmist calls upon all creation to be glad and to rejoice. By reason of the first, as well as the second coming of the Messiah. 
So the whole earth, heaven, sea, should rejoice because of the first and second coming of Messiah. The thought introduced in previous verse, verse 10, that the Lord reigns, is used as a reason why all creation should rejoice. All the creation is again called to rejoice and worship the Lord. The God who reigns on earth reigns in heaven. And what affects one part of the universe affects all. So, in all the manifestation of the character of God, whether made in heaven or in earth, it is proper to call on all the universe to partake in the general joy. So anything manifests the glory of God in heaven. Or on earth, the whole universe should join in rejoicing. Heaven and earth rejoiced in the incarnation of Christ. We see angels appearing and chanting. And on earth, the shepherd, the wise men were chanting. Also, in the establishment of God's righteous rule, the psalmist sees the lead end of the messianic age, which is to bring harmony and peace to all creation. So, there was enmity between heaven and earth after the fall of Adam and Eve. But now heaven and earth, in harmony, they are rejoicing and chanting to God. The heavenly hosts become in awe before the grace given to mankind on the day of incarnation. Glory to God in heaven, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Even the sea, the roaring of the waves is the voice of sea. Sometimes it speaks of terror, but here the roaring of sea expresses joy. Not only the sea, but all its fullness, all that it contains, that is let all that dwell in the sea praise God. His reign is an occasion for universal joy. Verse 12, in verse 11 he said, Heaven, earth, sea. In verse 12, let the field be joyful, and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the wood will rejoice before the Lord. So all creation is excited because God is coming to judge the earth righteously. Everyone is to exalt the Lord because he is coming to judge the earth. And according to Father Onesimus of Jerusalem, the fields in verse 12, where the Lord Jesus Christ used to preach, will rejoice. The trees and the wood will become glad, for our Lord has honored them, because a cross was taken from them, and he made this cross his throne. According to St. Augustine, the field represents the meek, the gentle, and the righteous. And according to St. Augustine, the trees of the wood represent the heathen. Because the trees of the wood means the trees of, of the wilderness, so represent the Gentiles. Why? 
Why represents the Gentiles according to Khan Augustine? Because they were cut off from the wild olive, not the original olive tree as St. Paul explained in Romans. And they are engrafted in the good olive tree. Last verse, verse 13, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. So the psalm ends with a joyful confidence that God will judge and set things right. Rejoice before the Lord at his presence and approach of their Lord and Maker. He is coming, for he is coming, it was repeated, to show the certainty of Christ's coming and the just reason there was for the joy. We are happy, we are rejoicing because the Lord is coming. And according to St. Jerome and others, the word coming was repeated twice to point the first coming and the second coming. And both of them are matter of joy for the believer, his first coming and second coming. The last judgment is sometimes described as a fearful occasion. It's fearful to the non-believers, to the non-repentant, but it is joyful to us, the believers. As we read in Luke chapter 21, verse 25 and 26, there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. But other times, the second coming is described as something pleasant and delightful by reason of the glory of the elect, which will produce a certain effect on the creation. That's why in the same chapter, in Luke chapter 21, verse 28, the Lord said, Now when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads, because your redemption draws near, your salvation draws near. So, all the things above named will rejoice in the presence of the Lord, because he is coming to redeem the world in his mercy, and because he will come again to judge in his justice. He came in the first coming to redeem the world. He comes in the second coming to judge the world. God is just, St. Augustine says, is it possible that God could have been so faithful in everything and so false as to the day of judgment? So St. Augustine is, is asking, can God be faithful in everything, but when it comes to the day of judgment, he will be false? Definitely not. He will judge the earth in righteousness. So the psalmist pictures the coming of the judge as something to anticipate. The righteous will anticipate his coming because he comes to deliver us. He looks forward to the coming of the Lord. St. Augustine says, For with righteousness shall he judge the world, not a part of it, for he bought not a part, 
God bought all the world, purchased. He will judge the whole, for it was the whole of which he paid the price. You have heard the gospel where it says that when he comes, he shall gather together his elect from the four winds. He gathers all his elect from the four winds, therefore from the whole world. What are righteousness and truth? Because in verse 13, judge the world with righteousness and the people with his truth. So St. Augustine is asking, what is righteousness and his truth? He will gather together his elect with him to the judgment. But the rest, he will separate one from another. For he will place some on his right and some on the left hand. But what is more just, what more true than that they shall not expect mercy from their judge who have refused to act mercifully before their judge come. So he's saying nothing more just and nothing more true that the wicked should not expect mercy from God because they refuse to act mercifully before his coming. But those who choose to act with mercy, also with mercy shall be judged. So, as the Lord said, with the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This concludes Psalm 96. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.